Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. This week, I'm going to be talking about the excellent James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service with my guest, Fraser Rice. Fraser has been a longtime super listener of the pod and a friend, and I asked him for a succinct bio so I could do a little intro of him, and he sent something that was so perfect, I'm just going to basically read what he wrote. Fraser's day job, lawyer in remission. He's also been an advisor to family offices and has worked in the financial services industry in a number of capacities. He's also an author. He wrote the book Wealth Actually and is the host of the Wealth Actually podcast. So if you're spending all your money on podcasts, you might want to dip a toe in there and learn how to manage your money a little more effectively. Frazier is also the co-writer of a horror comedy graphic novel called Stay Alive, which you can find on Amazon and Comixology. I highly recommend it. It's a great read. Frazier also died in the first scene of the movie The Devil's Restaurant. So if you'd like a visual, check that out. Anyway, here's my conversation with Frazier about On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Frazier Rice, welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's been a long time coming. Jason, I am thrilled to be here. I am glad you uh, suffered through my bad taste in movies and let me on. (laughs) Yeah, let's revisit a few of the hot take movies you suggested. You are a super listener of the podcast. For that, I thank you. Yep. And you are an avid engager in the social media. Um, In fact, our current uh, Instagram profile photo is inspired by you indirectly. Uh Uh-oh. Because I use a photo of, is it Amy Irving who is in uh, the... It was the Fury. Oh, and I, <laughs> is that Amy Irving? Do I have the right yeah, Amy? It is. Yeah. A, a swing and a miss. I, I, I remembered it more fondly than it actually was. Well, look, it was worth it. I mean, it's a, it's a howlingly worth it experience to watch. I'd actually, right now, would probably enjoy it a hell of a lot more. I don't know if you found this because I noticed that you've put forth really interesting and long lists of. COVID era entertainment binge watching options and you've been adding to those lists. Like, have you found that your tastes in movies has changed during this time? Like you're after a certain type of movie, like a, a thing that makes you feel good from your childhood or your, your youth. What, what, what kind of viewing habits have you noticed during this pandemic time? I, I really like stand-up comedies. Uh, so Sebastian Maniscalco has been a nice tonic in these sort of mm-hmm. crazy times. Uh, so Veep, which I discovered recently, oh, which, is, which is just, it really is brilliant and it's funny. And I come from the political world early in my career. So it, there's a lot of inside baseball with that that I really enjoy. So I like things that are funny. I, I come from, you know, liking the comic book comic book world and horror movies and things like that. And uh, that's great, uh, but a little bit intolerable when you're going from one place to really another in New York and trying to Mm -hmm. make sense of our post-apocalyptic world. Yeah. I'm jealous that you just like that you saved Veep for this time because I Uh, could not think of a better show to have what four or five seasons of, of that easily the best written show on television uh, when it was being made, unquestionably. It's, it's just rapid fire quips and they all hit. And Every, everything hits. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. And, and, and the, the, the roles are, they really cast that perfectly. Oh, incredible. That's a great show. I don't know how we arrived at doing, I mean, we needed to do a James Bond. So speaking of kind of the comfort food of movies during this time, I was so excited to revisit 
on Her Majesty's Secret Service and then go down a little bit of the of the James Bond rabbit hole, which I think you're much more qualified than I will we'll get into your experience of the comics, which I didn't even know was a thing. Okay. But um, we both watched the George Lazenby documentary that's been on Hulu for a couple of years, Becoming Bond. Right. And I tell you, I watched it again last night, the movie, uh, not the doc. I, I, I'm, I'm further going to plant the flag and say it's definitely my favorite Bond film. And I'm hard-pressed not to say it's the best of the original films. Like, I think that the filmmaking of the new Bonds is a whole other thing compared to what these are. Right. So I sort of separate those out. Yeah. So um, I, I, I have a, I, I have a real tough time dislodging Goldfinger as the top bond. I think it, you know, if you have sort of a checklist of things that a good bond movie has, you have to have you know, great bond women. And I'd say Goldfinger has at least two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to have a good plot. And I, I diverge mm-hmm. here and say the best bond movies tend to revolve around simple plots and Goldfinger yeah. Goldfinger is simple yet big enough that I think it captures the imagination. The cars and the gadgets are spectacular. The villains, you have a good cartoony odd job villain and you have, I think, a spectacular villain villain in Goldfinger. Uh, and the and the locations and, and the ending is good. The opening is good. It, so it's a solid overall one. And then I would say there's sort of a next tier of Bond film, which is generally really, really good on all those different fronts. And I put Honor Majesty's Secret Service in there as one of those in particular. I, I put For Your Eyes Only as a Roger Moore. I think that's the best one of his. Uh, and then Thunderball and uh, From Russia With Love, I put in that. Uh, neck of the woods and then honor majesty's secret service and then casino royale which i think is sort of the the latest entry and i think one of the better ones also interesting yeah this one i read that they kind of made a conscious decision to get away from the gadgetry in secret service which you can kind of notice there really isn't that much trickeration with the gadgets it's much more plot focused bond film and i guess a lot of people would say an overstuffed plot I, so it's funny because I, I've read most of the Fleming books and I have a weird collection of the graphic novel versions of a lot of the movies that were printed in the Daily Express in London. And Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the closest one to the book and the novelizations that I've ever, that I've seen out of all of them. And I think as a movie, as a movie movie, this one, I agree with you, stands up head and shoulders above all of them. Now, most people don't watch James Bond movies to, you know, be uh, emotionally crestfallen and so on. But, uh, but this, one has, yeah. this one has a human bond and an interplay that is absent from most of the other ones. And I think that's, that's what I think revisionist history is being kinder and kinder to this one on that basis. I think mean, people are saying, you know, this was a good movie. The, the miracle, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, is how well George Lazenby actually turns out especially in the climactic scene, which is, I think, I think one of the best in the whole series. You know what? Last night, I watched that scene again. You're totally right. I mean, to have an emotional experience in a Bond film, I don't, there's not another emotional experience in a Bond film, I think, until you get to the Daniel Craig films where, where that's maybe more a part of things. But again, I leave those kind of to the side because those modern bonds to me are sort of a different thing than this, what I would say is the classic era of bond, which by the way, for me, 
does not involve Timothy Dalton. Like, I think it's really Connery, Lazenby, Moore, I get it. But for me, it's Connery number one, Lazenby two, and I would say Roger Moore, a distant third for me personally, just because having having really kind of appreciated Lazenby, who this is the first time he ever acted in his life. That's it. The, the story is amazing. You couldn't, the, the documentary, I knew a little bit about how he was plucked from being uh, a candy model, basically from the streets of Australia, former car salesman right. and, and dropped into this and, and he pulls it off somehow. It, it's unbelievable. I, you know, from, if I'm ranking bonds, I, I agree with you, Sean Connery, no doubt, even diamonds are forever, which I, I really don't like that much, but I tolerate it because of him. I, I, Roger Moore has a soft spot in my heart because I grew up with him, but he's much better in The Saint, which is my favorite TV show uh, from that ilk. Uh, and so I kind of r- let him be that. Uh, but boy, Lazenby does a great job here. And, you know, Daniel Craig, I think I think he's terrific in Casino Royale. The the, the ones after that, I look back, I don't. they don't hold up that well with me. I think they're a little... Uh, they, they do some things well, but it, it doesn't quite work. Um, and Timothy Dalton, I, I, I actually kind of like both of those movies, even though they're not that great. Uh, I give him a pass because I think the opening scene in Living Daylights is, I put that way up there as amongst the yeah. where they're attacking uh, the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah. Yeah. Lazenby, I saw a couple things like people, it's really interesting to read how the critical appraisal has shifted about Her Majesty's Secret Service because, you know, at first people, it was such a story that, you know, they found this former mechanic and former Australian mechanic turned model who then finds himself playing the most famous, you know, film role in the world. He has a rangy physicality and a more, he's more, He's more masculine than Sean Connery in certain ways. Like Connery's he, he definitely, Scottishness is is a is kind of an aloof archness that is what he always leads with. But Lazenby, for not even being an actor at all, I I lament the six additional Bond movies that could have existed with him as Bond because I think had he not listened to the bad advice of his then agent and also not been as callow and sort of stupid a youth as he was at 29, turning down the opportunity to sign a contract to make six more Bond films and then basically relegating himself to the dustbin of history. um, He really would have turned in, I think, some great Bond films because of what you just mentioned before, that the ability to handle that ending scene, like, I was shocked, number one, to see Bond in love, right? Which only by shifting the guy playing the role, I think, did that work in this movie, right? Like when when he's professing his love to her, you're so taken aback because of a lifetime of watching Bond. You're just like, wait, what? This is not what this guy does. Tracy, an Asian shouldn't be concerned with anything but himself. I understand. We just have to go on the way we are. Huh. I'll have to find something else to do. Are you sure, James? 
I'd love you. I know I'll never find another girl like you. Will you marry me? He's so plausibly there in that moment. And then you know it's coming. You know it can't end well. The That part of the Bond character, I think, is something Daniel Craig does do well, is that the tortured, can't love part of Bond is brought more to the fore in the Daniel Craig era films. But this is where it starts. Like, Lazenby totally nails that to the point where then I started watching Diamonds Are Forever right afterwards because I was like, well, let me see where this goes. Oh, my no, it's, God. It's, it's, it's so terrible. bad. It's so horrible. And like, there's no continuity at all to the emotional experience that I just was left. And the jaunty swordsman that Sean Connery is, who is untouched by love. There's even a marriage joke that Money Petty makes at the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever, which you would think would be a moment for kind of a, just a really quick glancing reference to what had happened in the previous movie, but no. Mr. Franks, your passport is quite in order. Well, anyone seeing you in that outfit, Money Penny, would most certainly be discouraged from leaving the country. What can I bring you back from Holland? A diamond? In a ring? Would you settle for a tulip? Yes. You know, he turns it into a joke about uh, what kind of souvenir he's going to bring her back, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it is really one of the biggest what-ifs because I think you're right. He, you could feel him getting more comfortable even through the movie. And <laughs> and the, the the crazy part, too, and, you know, bad advice and, you know, he was a model and arrogant and all that stuff. I think there's a big dose of Australian tall poppy syndrome here that he grew totally. up Totally. Where he got up, he gets he gets the golden ticket basically, and there's something in Australian DNA that just does not want you to be super successful and rise above, I guess your station. And it's it's just a tragedy in some ways because it, it, he would have made Diamonds Are Forever, I think, much better. I think mm-hmm. Broccoli's made a lot of bad choices on that. Generally, mm-hmm. the source material isn't that great. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as with every James Bond, I can find some things to, you know, when it comes on TNT or something like that, I, I'm there for two hours, but yeah, I don't enjoy Diamonds Are Forever as much. But boy, to get back to the physicality part a little bit, I mean, you can tell Sean Connery is definitely a bodybuilder and, and that kind of, uh, that sort of physique and sort of strength I, you can, I mean, now that I sort of traffic in, you know, the fashion industry and things like that a little bit, you can see that Lazenby walks like a panther and, mm-hmm. and he's got that, he's got a weird intersection of strength and uh, finesse and, mm-hmm. uh, and a silhouette that, that just looks the part. And, yes. and, and he, and he sounds the part of the, they talk about in the, the histrionics he had to go through to sort of get rid of his Australian accent yeah. get a posh London one and he's swallowing matches and all that. It's great. <laughs> and it, 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 you know, you, I look at him and he would have been a perfect bond for man with the golden gun. 
if you contrast totally. him with Christopher Lee, they would have been roughly the same height, roughly mm-hmm. the same physicality. And whereas Roger Moore, I, I love uh, Man with a Golden Gun simply for the ending. I think that's one of the best mm-hmm. endings in Bond film lore. But mm-hmm. the rest of it, if they toned down the comedy absurdity component of it, I think Lazenby would have been really good. And yeah, I, I, it, it, it is the biggest what if. And the, the part of the story with Lazenby that's interesting too is this guy had the golden ticket and he just spat it up. <laughs> and it is so alien in this culture nowadays to see people who are social media strivers and uh, you know fame for fame's sake and everything that comes with it. And he had it handed to him on a plate. He dealt with it, enjoyed it. Uh, for a little while, and then and then jettisoned it, and found it extremely difficult, nay, impossible to recover. It's it's fascinating. I mean, it, there's almost a uh, it'd be a like a Gatsby esque type of uh, uh, story. Yeah, he certainly wouldn't do it now. But even in this documentary, he doesn't really have an answer. I mean, I think the answer you can read between the lines has more to do with just him being so, I think Diana Rigg has a quote where she sort of says, as an actor, right, and as someone trained and who paid her dues and came up in it, she had an awareness of how hard it is to get that type of an opportunity. But of course, for him, who just really fell into it, he had none of that real background awareness, right, that it's an apprenticeship, I should pay my dues, like, um, you know, oh my God, I'd be lucky to make six more Bond films like as a training course for the making of films and all the stuff that he got to do uh, as the character. But even in the documentary, he sort of, alternately over the years, he's kind of tried to position it like a counterculture move. Like he tries to sort of say that, you know, he grew the long beard and the hair and he pissed off Cubby Broccoli, who told him, don't show up at the premiere if you have long hair and a beard, that's not James Bond. And that, you know, some of his contemporary quotes at the time were all about, like, if you look at what the flower children are doing, because what, it was 69, right? Right. So he's, and he was a libertine. He was, (laughs) he was a sexual adventurer. He kind of tries to make it sound like, you know, Bond and the whole business of Bond was the man and fuck the man, I'm going over here. But, you know, he's still trying to make movies in Italy and all these other places to pretty unfortunate results. So I can't think of another example where some, and it's not like he was bad in the role. Like that would be one thing if it was sort of like, oh God, that was such a colossally failed experiment. Thank God we don't have to make six more with this guy. But I'm with you, man. I, I can't think of another Bond movie where at the end, I wanted to keep watching this character, this interpretation of the character continue to deal with things with this backstory now so brilliantly told because the vulnerability is unseen in any other Bond movie. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. 
And it, it's amazing too, because I think that it, that last scene is so poignant and it, it really is in many ways the best acting in the whole series. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I know anything about acting in a, in a meaningful way, but you know, you're touched by it. And uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, he's not going off to do Zardoz and uh, some of those types <laughs> of things, but uh, it, it's just a funny story of uh, how someone who, you know, he basically had two careers handed to him because the male model yeah. aspect of it happened as yeah. well, where he was plucked from selling Mercedes in London. And, yeah. you know, so he won the lottery twice in terms of a career. So he didn't have very good preparation, I guess, to understand the context in which success actually happens. And combine that with, again, I think I, I don't, I don't for a minute discount that Australian tall poppy DNA as being something deep seated that, that he was either very embarrassed by or uh, just, just did not understand how success worked. And, uh, and he felt pretty victim to that. It's, it's also like, what a, what a, what a brilliant comeuppance for the United Kingdom to have an Australian so brilliantly <laughs> embody James Bond and to have, to then have gone on and probably done so for the next you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's amazing to think what would have happened because I'm, you would not have seen Connery come back into the role without Lazenby crashing and burning. Um, really, just even before the movie was even released, he's already washed his hands of doing it again. And when you see Connery in Diamonds Forever, it's the first time he he's looks a little long in the tooth for the part to me. Oh yeah, no. He, he's you know? the the hair is definitely uh, <laughs> the hair's a little gray. The paunch uh, is a little, <laughs> and you know they they had to they had to you know force him to get into the gym for that. I'm sure, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know. And, and the other thing too is if he has a good second movie, Lazenby, that is, Roger Moore gets timed out. Uh, I think. Uh, and he never becomes Bond, and you know Moore and totally. Brosnan. Moore and Brosnan both had that issue where they were uh, they were kind of queued up to to sign on for the role, and their TV commitments uh, forestalled that a little bit. And I think if Lazenby gets the gets the momentum and Diamonds Are Forever does well, you know he's he's on for six. And yeah, there's a lot of different permutations that we could you know, conjecture about there. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think what could have happened. The other thing I want to talk about about this movie in relation to all the other movies is how well directed it is. And again, shockingly, this is a first-time director. So Peter Hunt had been uh, an editor on previous Bond films and a second unit director, at least on the one previous to Secret Service. And I think because they... Cubby Broccoli and Salzman really liked his fast edit style. And that was giving the films at the time, you know, 67, 68, giving them sort of a contemporary feel, which a lot of other mainstream cinema at the time probably didn't have. And elevating him to director, I mean, man, he he also hit this out of the park. Um, and I think... Cool- I was going to say one of the cool things uh, that that if you look at the sort of graphic novel version of this, which came out before the movie was filmed, I think it came out in 64 or 66, and this came out mm-hmm. in 69, the storyboarding of a lot of the scenes is very similar, including uh, sort of the knife throw when Bond goes to the uh, mafia uh, father, yeah. uh, the, the skier that goes into the uh, snow making machine. That is, that's queued up almost the same way. So I think there was an interesting thing, and I'm acutely aware of this, having 
sort of gone through a comic book production component that when when things are storyboarded and when it, it linked up with the book, it link, linked up with the graphic novel, Peter Hunt had a good uh, palette to work from. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped to make uh, helped to make his job a little bit easier in terms of uh, sort of staging things. And then that also doubly allowed him to make the quick edit component uh, that much more effective. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you, you, you're the one who told me that that it was it's of all the Bond films, I think it's the one most verbatim to the book and to the graphic novel or the comic strip that was coming out contemporaneously. And it's definitely a little long in the tooth. Like it, it, it's, it's a film you could probably pair 45 minutes from without really trying too hard. And, and it might, might be a little bit better off, but in a way, because we have a new bond in the context of where we are as as watching this the kind of film series evolve to have to have the room for Lazenby to kind of take all the time he takes at the top of the Swiss chalet with the women from all over the world, which, you know, feels like it takes an hour to get through all of that exposition about what the hell's <laughs> going on there. Up to the end is for the public. And from here upwards, it is strictly private. No one, no one at all. We come through without permission from the count. There is the Blanchard Institute for Allergy Research. What kind of allergies? All of them. Like the hay fever, or the sickness caused by the oysters, or inability to eat meat. The Count is the great specialist in this field. I'll be glad to get my feet on the ground. Not ground. Eyes. Um, but it's kind of, it it pays off because I think you, you, you learn enough about the man and how his bond is going to be a little different. And it sounds like, again, we're giving it a lot more thought than it sounds like was applied at the time of filming because Lazenby says nobody was giving him any help on the set. And it sounds like he's too busy basically going out and getting plastered and working his way through every female on the set to really pay too much attention to what his job was in terms of like, how am I approaching a scene, right? He just well, had it, he had that thing. Well, maybe he was so tired he couldn't be nervous, so. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been. There's, 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 there's value in that. I think that um, I, I, one of the parts that I think is interesting too, uh, a, a different sort of slant on this that makes the movie particularly good is th- this is one of the best music bonds uh, out there. Uh, so yeah. the Louis, Louis Armstrong, uh, song is a you know, sort of, uh, backdoor, one of the best Bond songs out of all of them. We have all the time in the world. Time enough for life to unfold All the precious things love has in store We have all the love in the world If that's all we have, you will find Nothing more. And then the yeah. John Barry, the John Barry action sequences, uh, 
definitely add so much to uh, the ski sequences and variety and the the uh, uh, attack at the end. It really works, uh, and and it's something that I when I went back and looked at it again a week or so ago, uh, I said, "Boy, th- this movie could have really fallen on its ear if the music didn't work." And you know it, that Louis Armstrong song, especially coming on at the end, uh, mm. it, it it doubles the impact. Whereas you know Tom Jones Thunderball, which I love, that that's not the right that's not the yeah. right mood that this movie's got going for it. Yeah, and. Speaking of the action sequences, wow. I, I think I'd said to you before, I thought this had some of the best hand-to-hand fight sequences in any Bond movie, um, especially in the beginning. I think that's one of the one of the things I was struck with was the the briskness and the 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 realness of the way the fights were staged and the way the rooms are broken up during the fight. It's it's very realistically played. It reminds me of some of the kind of Japanese crime movies I've been watching in a, in a recent JAG, watching kind of widescreen Japanese crime films of the late 50s and early 60s. And there's a couple of those that have these uh, really naturalistically filmed fight sequences like that. And that's a really good use of Lazenby. But the skiing chases, aside from the comical kind of close-up green screen shots or pre-green screen shots of Telly Savalas pretending to ski, which is one of my (laughs) favorite shots I've ever taken as a screen grab last night. Uh, Somebody commented on Instagram that he's the cousin of, he must be related to Ali G because he's wearing the exact same yellow goggles. (laughs) And I I put on, I said on Instagram, you know, does anyone think Telly Savalas ever skied a day in his life before during or after the filming of On Her Majesty's Secret Service because skiing and telly just don't go together. That's like I'll, I'll, I'll take the under. <laughs> uh, <laughs> those skiing sequences, man, those hold up to like, I watched, I also, another rabbit hole I went down, you know, a year or so ago was like really high-end contemporary extreme skiing films, which are now shot with drones and 4K footage and body cams and all this kind of stuff. I mean, some of the wider shots using professional skiers in those Swiss Alp mountains that they're filming those in are, are still stunning today. Well, yeah. some of the Warren Miller ones are, if you go back yeah. to the 80s, I grew up on those and those are just insane. Yeah. Uh, and to do that with a big, you know, actual film or a camcorder or something like that, it's amazing they're able to pull it off. The, the ski sequences are terrific. Uh, I think they contrast well too with the For Your Eyes Only, which yes. you, have to get, you have to get past the... Uh, the believability of a 40-something-year-old Roger Moore able to sort of channel Jean-Claude Quillet zipping around <laughs> down there. Yeah. Uh, although I think that's pretty cool. Um, the, I, I, I have to throw this out there just so I have it on record. The fight scene between Connery and Robert Shaw in From Russia With Love, to me, sure. is the peak of the fight mm-hmm. sequences. That is a brutal freaking scene. And mm-hmm. I almost get the sense that those two guys who are two pretty big alpha males, I bet they didn't like each other. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect that they, that, that, that had a little more than just acting involved on that front. But you're absolutely right. I, the scene in Her Majesty's Secret Service where 
George or James Bond is going to Diana Riggs hotel room and he has to fight the henchmen and, you know, they're crashing through everything. Like this, yeah. is, this is exactly right. I think the, the ski sequence, the ice car race scene in the Christmas village with Diana Rigg when they're, right. when they crash into that crazy thing. Like one of the things I love about this Bond film is it had humor in the action as opposed to Lazenby's dialogue. And, and his quips, you know, his throwaway quips, which are present in every Bond, I, I don't find they work that well. It's not his thing, but that's something that I think that would have improved in future ones. And yeah, you, you've just been like, oh, my God, this guy is, is one smooth cat. I, I agree with you. When I was watching Diamonds Are Forever, I was sort of so paying attention to just that. It's such a part of Connery that you just don't even notice it. But when someone else like Lazenby is trying to do it and it doesn't really land, it starts you thinking that there's more to that effortless quip tossed off in just the right manner than appears on screen. And I think Lazenby has a couple. His most famous one, of course, is... This never happened to the other fellow. Which is delivered almost to the camera, breaking the wall in acknowledgement of, of where we are with this new character. But it doesn't come naturally to him. And I think you're right. That may have, may, may have come a time. But it's also, that's such an innate... Connery-ism. Like, even when Sean Connery's in other movies, he still does that. You know, that's like, <laughs> he, he has that twinkle, that sense of humor. And yeah, the, the few times that Lazenby does it, it's, that's, the, those are the times where it, when it feels like he shouldn't be wearing that other guy's shoes quite so much. Just be you. Um, like, I don't think of Daniel Craig doing that. I don't think he really does that as Bond, does he? I don't think, I can't think of a famous quip from Daniel Craig because his Bond is keyed in more to Really, what Lazen, the Lazenby Bond, he's really, now I realize, like, wow, he's, the thing they forgot to do in all the other movies before those was to have a trajectory of what this guy's psyche would be like had he lived through all these things. And isn't that kind of what Fleming was really trying to write in the novels, like the cost of this life more so than the swashbuckling? He tried to. I think Fleming was, I think he got sick of writing them a little bit. And so he tried to make them interesting. And the order of Honor Majesty's Secret Service doesn't fit the movies exactly. The mm. Wolfeld dies at the end of uh, mm. You Only Live Twice. And so they switched it around. And that's where filmmakers had to make a couple of modifications, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Bond in the books is a hard drinking, damaged guy. And you get a sense of that a little bit in Dr. No, and it evaporates quickly through the Connery arc. You see that a little bit, and especially at the end with Lazenby, they abandon it completely with Roger Moore. Timothy Dalton didn't happen there. Pierce Brosnan, same thing. I guess they allude to it a couple times. Later. I forgot about Pierce later Brosnan. Movies. Oh, it's... it's it, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, Pierce. Nice guy, but I completely forgot that Pierce Brosnan had a chapter here. I, I, I'm afraid I don't really like any of them. I, I, yeah. I, I literally I like, couldn't tell you what any of them are. I literally uh, I couldn't. You know, there's Goldeneye. The, the Pierce Brosnan ones. There's Goldeneye, and then there's two other ones, and and or maybe three. And I just I, they don't they don't resonate with me. And I think he'd be a great Bond if given a better material, yeah, and and be told to go in a little bit darker direction. He was in a movie called The Fourth Protocol, which sure Frederick Forsyth book, which he was terrific, and it was and that was probably in some ways what reminded people, much like Daniel Craig in Lair Cake, that he yeah. should be able to do this. And, you know, they just took it in a different direction and made it much more Roger Morey, which uh, I, 
not, not my taste, but it revitalized the, the franchise at the time. How about Pierce Brosnan in the John Le Carré adaptation, The Tailor of Panama? He's amazing in that. Right. There's two ways we can deal with this one, Lugo. Sweat it out for six months, then fall into each other's arms. Darling, why did we ever do this before? Method B, the preferred one, full on affair now. Observing tight security all around. See how we like it. If we don't, chuck it in. No one's the wiser. I don't suppose it's occurred to you that I might hugely prefer someone else. Is that a no? No. <laughs> Come and dance. Oh, God, you don't dance as well, do you? As well as one. Oh yeah, no, he's, um, it's it's terrific. He 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 is an excellent Bond. He just he was just let down by material and direction and concept, I think. And yeah, I, that's unfortunate because I think he 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 brought a lot to the role and just it was just kept under wraps, which is too bad. Now you mentioned earlier um, that to, to be a great Bond film, you have to have great Bond women. What do you think of Diana Rigg in this as a as a Bond woman, quote unquote? So she's terrific. I think. I think she is the she is the right uh, mix of spirit and independence and sexiness that you need. My my only issue, and this is being hyper critical, is you know, she's supposed to be half English, half Italian, and I don't know how you figure that out in in that. But <laughs> she was great, and I know, and, and obviously, I just came out well before I was born, but, uh, for the times, and she was in Avengers before that. Uh, so mm-hmm. she had a lot of backing and she was a real, you know, tried and true actress. She was the right person for that role. Uh, you know, it, would there be other ones? And I guess this is sort of alternative casting, but you know, would a, an athletic Sophia Loren have been the, the right mix with sort of what the character is supposed to be from the book or somebody like that. I, I've mused about that, but I think Diana Rigg pulls it off well and she stands up to Bond and is sexy enough to, to, to sort of warrant the decisions that Bond makes. And, and I think that's, you've got to have that strong Bond woman to be able to square off and be formidable in front of, you know, someone who's a formidable character. In the book, is her character as kind of single-minded and independent as the Diana Rigg performance is? Because she also stands up to a very strong-willed and domineering father, in addition to a strong-willed and domineering Bond. She's her own person throughout the movie. She's not just there filling out a bikini like so many, you know, Bond women are who are not there primarily for their acting chops. I feel like she is there primarily for her acting chops, even though she is gorgeous and beautiful. And the, the central thing that's got to work is just that, that James Bond, not even George Lazenby, just that James Bond would fall in love with her. Right. Those scenes feel real and they feel they have levity and they have kind of, she's, she's the type of woman that J- you could see James Bond falling in, in love with because she's a little dangerous. She's funny, but she's, wounded and vulnerable and the scenes where he's like wiping tears from her eyes including at their wedding right are really extraordinary so i'm just curious in the book is her character fleshed out did fleming write female characters particularly well or not 
I, I think it, the the scenes are consistent with the movie, but the characterizations in the book are more thinly written. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is one of those things where, you know, I think it makes a difference whether you've read the book first versus seen the movie. So I had seen the movie before I read the book and I had Diana Rigg firmly in mind and could backfill uh, mm-hmm. that, that yeah. uh, impressiveness uh, into the reading of it. If I read the book first and go, oh, okay. And you know, I got to kind of believe that James Bond is going to, you know, get married, which is a big deal. And, yeah. uh, in the book though, they do make a reference to, if I remember this correctly, I may be mixing books up or merging them, but, uh, he, he does reference Vesper Lind, which is in, uh, Casino Royale. And that is, that's where he, uh, is wounded, uh, mm. initially in his career. And so there's, there's a little bit of backstory to that. And so I think the development of bond where this movie misses that and couldn't because Casino Royale wasn't a thing within the continuum of the films. Uh, that is something that would be, uh, that you'd want reference. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if I were, you know, we're in, we're in remake land, uh, in movies, I would be really interested to see honor Majesty's secret service remade, uh, given a lot of the different context that's out mm. there. Um, I, I wouldn't want the Lazenby experience to be relegated to more of a footnote than it already is. But I think mm. there is, if, if the goal of future bonds is to uh, have, have an arc uh, uh, to the character, you've got the foundation of Vesper Lind uh, already in Casino Royale, and then it, it Bond getting married makes sense, and it doesn't fall out of the sky like it does uh, in in this particular continuum. You're right. That would be the one to remake. Maybe the next time they change Bonds, which the last three movies has always felt like, okay, that's it. Daniel Craig says all these things after he immediately like the lesson should be Daniel, don't talk to the press like within six months after completing filming because you always say the wrong thing. But I guess this time he really is done. I don't know. He's I, I, he's getting up there. And I, I heard the last time he filmed one of these things, he broke his wrist and he threw his back out. And, you know, like his, he had a flat tire or something when they interviewed him. So he was particularly grouchy. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, you got you to gotta put these guys in quarantine for a month and heal up and get them cheerful again before you send them out there because that's, that's no good. <laughs> I wanted to read you a couple of these great um, – what do they call them? Retrospective review quotes, which are kind of, it's always fascinating to me how much of a movie's reaction, both to viewers and to critics has to do with so many other things going on in the moment when the movie comes out, it turns out, you know, it's like the whole fact that there's a section on the Wikipedia page that's called, you know, retrospective reviews as opposed to, (laughs) Contemporary reviews just underscores this point, which is that some films take on different meanings or just take longer to appreciate because at the time, either the story of Lazenby and all the drama going on with that takes over or just people love Sean Connery and it's just so jarring to see another guy. Like we have the benefit kind of growing up where we didn't live contemporaneously through the experience of like, Sean Connery is James Bond. And then these other guys tried to fill the role and our reaction to it as kids are probably the same where it's sort of like my first involvement is with the Roger Moore bond. And then you learn there's these other bond movies that you come to find out are quote unquote better because Sean Connery. Right. But like 
Moonraker. That was my contemporaneous Bond. It was Moonraker. Right. And, you know, that's not a great Bond film, but nope. that's who Bond was when I was growing up. And then you kind of experience all these other ones. So it's different to think about how people felt at the time, which is they either loved Lazenby, I'm talking about critics now, or they just couldn't, they couldn't, they had no space to even wrap their arms around it. But no less than Steven Soderbergh says of Secret Service, quote, for me, there's no question that cinematically on Her Majesty's Secret Service is the best Bond film and the only one worth watching repeatedly for reasons other than pure entertainment. Shot to shot, this movie is beautiful in a way none of the other Bond films are, end quote. High praise. And I, based on what he's talking about there in terms of the technical components and, and the vibrancy of the shots and so on, I, I, I agree with him. I think it's, it's yeah. a well-shot movie. I, I would take issue with pacing, which we talked about, yes. and some other things. Uh, but yeah, I, I, again, as I said, revisionist history, is, is, it, it, it's getting kinder to it. And Christopher Nolan said, quote, what I liked about it it, what I liked about it that we've tried to emulate in this film, he's talking about Inception, is there's a tremendous balance in that movie of action and scale and romanticism and tragedy and emotion. I thought that was such an interesting quote because when you think about Inception, which is a similarly very long movie with a lot going on in it, right. and a similar combination of all of these exact same things, that to me is very kind of on the nose too. It, 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 it feels like Honor Majesty's Secret Service does try to do more uh, with the character and, and the arc. It, it starts from a really good foundation, and, and, and you know, that, that speaks to, I think, Peter Hunt's talent. What did he do after uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, or was this it? Uh, no, he directed some other movies, but nothing really, nothing I think was as good as this, again, so he also did um, he did a Lee Marvin movie called Shout at the Devil, also based on a Wilbur Smith novel. Then he did Gulliver's Travels, the 1977 version of that. This one you'll like, Death Hunt, directed oh, by Peter Hunt. Bronson, interesting. Yep. Angie Dickinson. Uh, no, that's interesting. I, it, it, I guess his career got put in neutral, too, in some ways uh, with this, which is too bad because the, the movie is... Uh, the movie's solid, and and with the right material and the right things going on, it it, you know, it well, that's why it's getting good renewed interest, and uh, you know, smart people yeah. are looking at it and saying that it's more than just you know a footnote. Now he doesn't get a lot to do, but I was really impressed with Telly Savalas, who I don't think of. I think of him just as a thing, a pop cultural <laughs> entity. I don't think of him as an actor, but this movie kind of reminded me that I should pay a little more attention. Because he's actually quite good. He, he just doesn't have enough scenes to really do what he could. Our great breakthrough since last summer has been the confection of a certain Vitus Omega. Infertility. Total infertility in plants and animals. Not just disease in a few herds, Mr. Bond, or the loss of a single crop, but the destruction of a whole strain forever throughout an entire continent. If my demands are not met, I shall proceed with a systematic extinction of whole species of cereals and livestock all over the world. Too much of his Blofeld time is spent doing things he shouldn't be doing, like skiing and firing machine guns and running. But 
his dialogue scenes are really funny and good. And he, he would have been a great Bond villain. I just think it's unfortunately under underwritten here. I, he he's brought in way too late. Uh, yeah. So you're not so the you know the the plot unfolding. In, if I were a director, I would be having that happen more in parallel with some of the other sequences yeah. uh, that may have thrown the vibe of the movie off. I don't know, but you're right. He's 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 able to give two or three soliloquies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and be a mad scientist, genius, world conqueror. Um, I throw this out there, you know, with Telly Savalas, you know, who all of us remember as Kojak. The the biggest whiff in the history of casting, or the biggest missed opportunity, I think, is Telly Savalas as Lex Luthor, who he would have been. It would have been exactly right. And how did that never happen? I think uh, I think Superman the movie, which you know more about the details of it, I think it just happened too late. And uh, but he's the, the the voice. You know, he's already bald, so he's got that yeah. happening. You save on hair bills with that. But he he's he's <laughs> he's the right level of menace and intelligence for that role. And you know, Gene Hackman, who I have a ton of respect for as an actor mm-hmm. and is good as Lex Luthor, Tyler Savalas would have been perfect. And would have been. That, that would have been a great, uh, uh, someday. And maybe if, you know, if people's likenesses are digitized and they become holograms and, you know, kids in their basements can cast whomever they want and create their own movies, maybe he's the next one, uh, for That's somebody, true. but, uh, that's that, that that's something I wish I, that, I, that I wish would have happened. He's, he has one of the best entries in an unfortunate category, which is uh, actors releasing cover songs. Are you familiar with the, <laughs> the William Sh- cover of the, the William Shatner song? Memorial? <laughs> yeah, the William Shatner Memorial category. Are, are you familiar with Telly's cover of the Bread song "If"? If a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? The words will never show the you I've come to know. Which was a number one song in the UK in 1975. As a one number game. number one. Oh my number goodness. one single in the UK in 1975. I, I may be surfing over to Spotify when we're done here. Check that out. It, You're it, gonna it, have to it, check that out. It, it can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's bread. Come on, that's a great band. That's a that's like that's yacht rock supreme.
was, I was, uh, you took the words out of my mouth. It's Telly Savalas using a yacht rock staple. I mean, it could be none more yacht rock than to have Telly on your yacht, right? (laughs) I think Kojak deserves more love too. It doesn't often get referenced in the same reverence for, for the, for, for kind of great kind of crime drama stuff from the seventies as a lot of other shows. I'm not really sure why I'd have to go back. I haven't, I haven't revisited Kojak in a long time, but I'm, it feels like it's probably better than I think it is or that it gets credit for being. I don't know. Uh, it's one of those things if, you know, if millennials feel like they want to talk to me about that, I would have them check out the Rockford Files, Jim Garner's yeah. magnum opus. And then uh, Kojak is interesting. And the, the the key is to go back into the YouTube files and see old Larry Hagman as J.R. Ewing. And that is, <laughs> that, is, that is a TV star that they do that not is. make anymore. And he, he, he steals every scene he's in, even if he doesn't say anything. And uh, it's tough to really, I, I don't have a good analogy for that in a lot of shows that are out there now. You can just, you can just feel mischief walk through the door when he's on screen. That's a great point. You know, having just edited and released the Wrath of Khan episode, Hagman is kind of the white guy version of Ricardo Montalban in the way that you're talking about, where Ricardo Montalban was such a consummate television actor and just ate up every every square pixel of available frame space regardless of what his character was or wasn't doing in any scene ever and Hagman is kind of the same way really when you think about it like you're right that coming into any scene as as JR he just owns it like he's just had that thing and he had that his whole career I mean even he he's great in primary colors do you ever see him in that where he, oh yeah sure he plays such a such a brilliantly nuanced and weirded out kind of political character who has this wild backstory of cocaine and bisexual lovers and all this kind of stuff that's uncovered by the, the Clinton's dustbuster. You know, the world is getting more and more complicated. And politicians have to explain things to you in simpler terms so that they can get their little oversimplified explanations on the evening news. And eventually, instead of even trying to explain things, they just give up and start slinging mud at each other. And it's all to keep you excited, keep you watching, like you watch um, a car wreck or a um, a wrestling match. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it's like. Professional wrestling. It's, It's staged and it's fake and it doesn't mean anything. And that goes for the debates. We don't we don't hate our opponents. Hell, half the time we don't even know them. But it seems it's the only way we know how to keep you all riled up. So what I want to do with this campaign is kind of quiet things down and start having a conversation about what sort of country we want this to be in the next century. And his scenes in that movie are phenomenal. He's so good. He had it. That, that, uh, alternative casting, if Burt Reynolds didn't take on the role of the Dirk Diggler movie, I thought Larry Hagman would have been a terrific stand-in for that. He just, he is, he is 70s personified and just, he would have eaten that up completely. You're totally right. Yeah, he, he would have been great in that. He has a kind of a, certainly later in his life, I don't know if I, I don't remember it well enough as JR, but certainly like by the time Primary Colors movie came out, 
his lived inness, you know, the fact that he had, I think he was a recovered alcoholic and had spent many years, you know, sober after kind of being, didn't he have a famous liver transplant? And kind I was going to say, I think he was on his third liver by the time primary numbers <laughs> came out, which, uh, you know, the, that guy, he lived life wide open. I mean, they, they yeah. he, apparently, I may get this wrong, but I think he lived next to Keith Moon in Malibu back in the late 60s or something like that. Which I thought that was Steve McQueen. Well, he was probably on the other side. Maybe there were and, on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can you can only imagine what kind of chaos was going on on that front. I mean, yeah, anyway, <laughs> we're incredible. pretty far removed from Switzerland and George Lazenby, although I'm sure he found his way over there too. But uh, <laughs> you know, what's one of the funniest shots in Secret Service is at the end battle where her father and the helicopter squad are storming the Swiss ski chalet stronghold. I laughed out loud. It was Tarantino-esque. There's a shot where Lazenby comes sliding down the, uh, he's sliding down the, like, the hallway outside, oh. firing his machine gun at the same time. <laughs> oh, it's terrific. That's, that's, the, that's the winner shot that everyone kind of remembers of him. because he's, you know, he's, he's full, full athleticism. He's uh, indicating the absolutely poor design of the architecture that would have an iced across walkway uh, from a helipad to the main area. Uh, and he's got an old uh, Sten gun from, you know, with the side mounted yeah. uh, uh, magazine, which yeah. immediately makes any uh, attack on a mountainside that much better. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, one of those movies that I, I like more and more as I watch it, and uh, even even the weirdness and the, the things like when he has to change his voice when he's Sir Hillary, uh, and you know going and testing Blofeld's bona fides as a, a archduke or whatever he was. Uh, that bothers me a little bit, just from a it sounds different and weird and kind of screws me up, but. It, it, with that, I find it funny, and, and he he was good. It could uh, what might have been. Well, you know the reason it sounds funny to you—they dubbed him. That's not him speaking as Sir Hillary Bray. Uh, they, I'm not surprised because that's a lot of dialogue to have to to fix. Um, and yeah. I guess the Bond movies had a pretty good heritage of doing that. Uh, Gert Forb and Goldfinger, I think, is dubbed, and I think Ursula Andress is dubbed too. Uh, I think her Correct. accent was so thick that they had to switch all that out. Yeah, and also her father's whole dialogue is dubbed in this movie. He had too too thick of a Italian accent, and so at the end they had to dub him. And they used, there's a, an actor who is a neighbor of Peter Hunt. He was originally offered the part of Sir Hilary Bray, who Lazenby impersonates, and through that gets access to uh, Blofeld's Swiss retreat. And then when Lazenby was trying to do an imitation of Sir Hilary Bray, it just wasn't convincing enough. So they actually ended up using that guy to come in and track that dialogue over, which is why that unfortunately has that kind of feeling. Well, and that's something where in future Bond movies, if you just had Lazenby running through the whole thing, it would have been more, even more consistent. Now, for people that are interested in Bond, either glancingly or intimately, is it worth kind of seeking out these compilations of the comics? Because tell me about those. I never even knew that was a thing. Sure. No, they uh, they were serialized in the Daily Express in in London and England. Uh, they had a bit of a tortured history because Ian Fleming would get in fights with the publishers and I'm sure the money around it was kooky, 
but uh, I, I think they're interesting. I, I have tipped my toe in the water a little bit on graphic novels. Not only I'm a big fan of them growing up and reading them, and so it's interesting. And then I helped to create one, uh, co-wrote it with a friend of mine. And so to see how that all comes into action, it's interesting to take source material that you remember from a movie and see how that translates. Uh, I think it's it's a great way to, I think, look at Bond if you if you don't have the patience or the time to get through the books and to see what the Ian Fleming vision was in a more direct way than the, the movies provide, and I would say that they they're related in the movies, but not not too close necessarily. Uh, this it's a good way to do it, and if you go to any comic book store, they have them and uh, they're bundled together, and you can see they'll. I'll have a couple of movies or books together and you can sort of see how that works. Uh, they, it's black and white. Uh, you get to see what an artist's impression of Bond looks like. And I would say it looks like a combination of a, of a weathered Sean Connery slash uh, uh, George Lazenby. Uh, it, not mm-hmm. as Bay as, say, uh, Roger Moore, um, not as blonde or compact as Daniel Craig and um, Timothy Dalton is uh, maybe a little more t- too proper. They let him drink in the comic strips and smoke and do all sorts of things that you could do in the '60s without political correctness. And it's uh, they're cool. It's a it's a nice it's a it's an interesting way to sort of see Ian Fleming's vision in a quick way and in a storyboarded way. If you're sort of being a completist uh, around having seen all the movies. Now, uh, if anyone's curious about picking up some of the Fleming Bond books, what would you recommend? What's like the one or two books if you want to jump in and see how those are compared to what we know of the movies? Uh, I would start with Casino Royale uh, because you have a a good point of reference with Daniel Craig. And so for most people, that may have been their first uh, and sort of the most vivid. And you get a good idea of uh, Le Chiffre and Vesper Lynn and uh, what Bond is about generally. I would go, I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the best written Bond and the one with the most character arc. And so for people who aren't uh, big completists, uh, then I would go that route. Uh, those are two good ones to start. And then you can kind of back into Dr. No and Goldfinger is, is such a superior movie to the book. I almost wouldn't bother with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the non Ian Fleming ones, uh, the best one, I think John Gardner wrote it, if I'm remembering correctly, is Roll of Honor. Uh, and that's one, if you want to go veer off into something that hasn't even been touched yet. And, uh, the, the scene from, uh, the opening scene with Jaws where he pushes Bond out of the plane, uh, that comes from Roll of Honor, uh, basically. So they, you know, the, the, back in the later Roger Moore ones, when they're trying to mine some of these things, uh, that's where they went. Like Moonraker, for instance, is another one. I wouldn't bother with the book. I don't, I don't think it's that great. And mm-hmm. the movie which wasn't that great either. It, it improved upon it, but not that much. And I don't know that uh, I, I would stick with the, I'd stick with Casino Royale and I'd stick with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I'm kind of also interested, you know, I'm interested in some of the more recent kind of Bond books that have been commissioned, like Sebastian Falks wrote some, uh, Kingsley Amos actually wrote one under a pseudonym in 1968, which I didn't know. He was a huge Bond fan. I think he actually wrote, like a Bond sort of um, encyclopedia of some sort at the time. So he was he was heavily into James Bond. 
Right. Uh, I haven't read that. I'm going to have to check that out because that, that immediately piques my interest. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah it, it's sort of like the Star Wars, you know, when it sort of before uh, the prequels and sequels came out, there was sort of a backfill of books that came out that people uh, used to fill up their Star Wars yen. And mm-hmm. it, it took the characters into different directions. Uh, the John Gardner ones, I think, are interesting. They, 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 they don't have the, the arc of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and, and the quaintness of the rest of Ian Fleming's books. But they're, they're, they're worth it. And they've, they've got some scenes in them that are interesting and fun. Okay, cool. Let's move on to your uh, latchkey TV experiences because you have one of the ones I've been looking forward to someone bringing up most over okay. all the episodes of the podcast. Hello? So I'm going to let you have the floor. Tell me what some of your shows were as a child growing up. Well, so a few of the ones, I'll start with Saturday morning, which was uh, a big deal. Uh, I loved sports, loved baseball in particular. And this week in baseball, I was getting in a Twitter fight with somebody and they're like, best theme songs of all time. And I said, (laughs) first of all, uh, this week in baseball was wonderful because you had Mel Allen. And for those people who uh, have a real appreciation for sports casters and radio personalities, Mel Allen is it. And Back in the day, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was really a part of that sort of playing baseball and fascinated by it, and if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have learned math, you found out about other players in the in Major League Baseball that weren't your team uh, by seeing This Week in Baseball. Hello there, everybody. This is Mal Allen. Shudder the thought, folks. The picture's not so foul. San Diego Zoom Boom. 11 on a row. Milwaukee mug shots, complete with fingers prints. Take 12, St. Louis, high speed automatic pennant drive. No stop down from Motown. The Tigers develop the touch. Snap decisions, snap shots, enlarging the overexposed Yankee hypo. And switch cameras, catch action, photo finishes everywhere. From cheers to tears, all the shots that are fit to print, moving frame by frame on This Week in Baseball. Uh, Mel Allen would have a little uh, voiceover describing the action. You'd find out about Dale Murphy in Atlanta or Andre Dawson in Chicago and Montreal and some of these other guys. And it just, I mean, it filled the imagination up. And the the other thing that it really did was uh, the, the end theme song, Gathering of Clouds, if you wanted, if you wanted to get a ten-year-old boy riled up to run through a brick wall, that was it. And you see all these stars. You see Pete Rose sliding into second base. You see, you see Carl Yastrzemski hit me having these powerful hits, and the slow motion's going. And 
NFL films would do stuff like that with their slow motion and symphonic gestures. But boy, every Saturday you got that and you would have to pry me away uh, from the TV and it just activated imagination. And uh, I look back on it and and say, well, this is really quaint. And I go, you know, this is quaint. This is freaking awesome. And I don't know how people, I don't know how people don't have these types of experiences anymore. Uh, so during the week, um, aside from being sort of an MTV kid and, you know, watching videos all day, um, back at uh, channel 11 PIX and channel five, I think it was NYW, uh, they used to have the old Marvel comics shows. And mm. you talk about getting a great, education in early American myth-making. They're all based on Marvel Comics, you know, 1961 to 1963. You get a good grounding of Captain America and the Hulk and Iron Man and all that. And uh, it's it's really cool. And they, I guess it's, it's not animation per se is, you know, they have panels and then they veer the camera to sort of show action. But the other thing that was pretty cool about them is their theme songs were interesting. And, you know, the Iron Man theme song is sort of an interesting walking bass line. And uh, the Incredible Hulk theme song is really good. Uh, but then the granddaddy of all of them, uh, which was separate from the Marvel Comics ones, but only slightly, was uh, Spider-Man. And that that one uh, had a couple of seasons and you get introduced to a lot of different characters. And uh, with all of them, they, you know, and Stan Lee's greatness and, Jack Kirby's greatness in terms of creating these American myths was you got a real grounding, not only in superpowers and sort of uh, science, whether true or not, but also just this really cool idea of personal responsibility and and a, and a depth that that lacked in the DC comic world. So, you know, you have Spider-Man who, uh, because of greed, let the person who killed his uncle get away. And, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And, Bruce Banner, uh, you know, saving somebody and then getting nuked by gamma rays. And it creates this issue for him with having to deal with the Hulk and Captain America dealing with being frozen for 70 years and and sort of figuring out how to uh, deal with the um, society. It just deeper characters and sort of real, I'm not going to say it climbs to the level of actual literature because they are comic books and they do, they, they can be simple, but you know, for a young boy, it was really interesting. And it really, that really activated my imagination in terms of uh, graphics and storytelling and, uh, and, and strong characters. So uh, those are the, it's amazing when you sort of look back and try to pinpoint what your influences are, they come from all over the place. Mm -hmm. So uh, great stuff. So it's interesting on that point about the literature. I've been thinking about this lately <clears throat> because I didn't get into comic books until my experimentation with other mind-altering substances in later <laughs> high school years led me to things like uh, Heavy Metal Magazine or the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers or R. Crumb, Kitchen Sink Comics, things like that, alternative comics. But for, I think, a lot of kids growing up in the 70s and the 80s, were comic books and those types of shows that you just talked about places where you could get introduced to the types of themes that we would then go on to read in literary novels per se? Like I kind of have been developing this half-baked theory, which is one of my specialties, that comic books are sort of like literature for people who aren't yet reading books. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that it's sort of a way to introduce big concepts like you're talking about, but in a way that a 10-year-old is going to absorb. 
Is that what a fair it, assessment? Uh, completely. I, and I, I would go, as, as you're building your worldview here, maybe I'll try to contribute to it. I think it's a terrific gateway drug uh, into literature in that it, it speeds the absorption of those themes and gets you past the impatient reader stage in many ways because of the fact that they're uh, they're visual, they're paneled, uh, invariably they're pretty short. Uh, so you can get to different, let's call it Shakespearean concepts if they're well done uh, quicker. And if you're a 10 year old and you're not trying to get through old English uh, and you know, or H.L. Mencken levels of vocabulary in order to get to uh, a theme and an abstraction, uh, I think it's uh, a pretty cool, uh, it's a pretty cool avenue to it. And I, you know, people make fun of me for having my comic book fetish and all that. Yeah, screw you. I, I, these things were useful to me. And, and I would go so far as to say there's some, there's some stories that really do rise to the level of, of seriousness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like, you know, sort of Daredevil and Electra is one of them, which is, you know, I think one of the sadder moments in comics and there's a bunch of other ones, but another one where you get really sort of cosmic types of, uh, thinking and Marvel was really good at this, uh, I think it's Fantastic Four. I forget the number, which already destroys my bona fides. But it's the three issue. It's the three issue arc where the Fantastic Four uh, meet Galactus for the first time and the Silver Surfer. And I mean, you're dealing with you know gods and life and existentialism, and it's in a digestible form that I, I think you know for people who want to go that route and, and learn more about those things, I think it's a really cool. It's a it's a cool avenue to do it, and obviously you'd want to curate that a little bit. And some stories are lame and boring, and other ones are rise to that kind of level. Uh, there are all sorts of great uh, Spider-Man stories uh, that fit that bill. And uh, so, for people who sort of denigrate the art form, I I say you can denigrate it all you want. I, I took from it what I will, and and I enjoy it, and I like revisiting it, and I like uh, I like seeing you know a lot of the things that it builds, and you know, and if you doubt the seriousness of it, uh, you know, Marvel Studios, you know. That's a that's a ten billion dollar franchise based off of two guys or three or four guys uh, collective imaginations. Uh, you know, you'd have to go to him and maybe George Lucas and then the DC folks uh, mm -hmm. to to kind of get that kind of industrialized myth making. That you you find me a high school student who knows who Beowulf is. Mm -hmm. I can find I can find I can find ten on the block right now who who know who Iron Man is. I, I take umbrage when people uh, denigrate some of those things. So I will, I will die on that hill any day. I love it. All right. Well, listen, let's leave it there. That was great, Frazier. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I love getting the chance to revisit this great James Bond movie. I encourage all the listeners to go check it out. If you're in the mood for a little escapist entertainment, you could do a lot worse than on her majesty's secret service starring the great George Lazenby. Thank you very much, Jason. And I encourage everybody to go to the other full cast and crew episodes because there's a lot of great gold in there on a lot of fun movies. All right, buddy. Thanks so much. Stay safe. You bet. Likewise. Talk soon. Bye. Superpowered from the forehead to the toes. What 
watch them change their very shape before you know. See arcane striking superhero change to Viking superhero. Ah, bling and real swing and shield bling and superhero. They're the latest, they're the greatest, ultimate superhero.